to uh, the round table before our next uh, podcast. Uh, I'm Gene D with Gold Coast Poker. I got my partner in crime, Wild Bill Phillips here, as well as our GCP operative and poker writer, Ben Saxton. We're going to discuss a little bit about what's going on in the poker world before we dive into our next podcast guests. Uh, guys, you want to take it away? Yeah, I just want to plug our uh, upcoming events real quick, too. Uh, we have the Golden Ticket event in Las Vegas at MGM. That's uh, June 8th. It's coming up real soon through the 11th. Uh, in our roundtable, we'll talk about the format a little bit. Uh, also, you got to get your reservations in now, July 20th through the 31st at Pearl River. We got our next big event there. And they're also having the county fair at the same time. So hotel rooms are a premium and hard to get. So definitely get in touch with me as soon as possible to get in for that. And the good news is it's one of those few times where there's a lot to do in Philadelphia, Mississippi, because they have the county fair, which is, is huge. And they also have the water park open. So if you want to bring your family, it's the right time to do it. All right, that's it on my plugs. Good deal. You want to go ahead and kind of uh, discuss the minions uh, that we got going on for this year? What, we're about six or seven years into this, or has it been eight? Um, I, I, I've been lucky enough to be a minion one time, but Bill, you want to kind of explain in case anybody wants to invest? Yeah, so the minions, um, which I think we might talk about a little bit in the interview with Steph later, um, that is something that Will Souther put together, also known as the Poker Monkey, and it's a team of players that go to the main event, and uh, you can be an investor or you can be a player. Probably pretty much everybody that's already applied to be a player this year is probably going to come from that prize pool, uh, that, that pool. But if you want to invest this year, also that helps your chances possibly being a player in future years. So what happens is a minion, they have their whole buy-in put up and then the investors and the minion split whatever they win. Um, and in the past, we've had what, five to seven, Gene? And we've had some people make deep runs as minions. Um, and we've also... Um, Put in some people that probably wouldn't have ever been able to play the main event if not for this format it's kind of balanced between some really good players like this year we got mark davis who's a wpt champion jamie bertuzio who's top 20 female in the world right now for 2023 um and we also have some guys you know we try to get david Hendricks, also known as the atom bomb um, in there in the past and so we might have some candidates like that where it's kind of like making their poker dreams come true. Um, you guys like the format of the minions? Yeah. Uh, so if I remember right, the, it's 60-40, right? The 60 goes to the uh, investment group and 40 goes to the player? Uh, I think it's 65-35. The investment group oh. gets... 65% of the profit, they also get the first 10K back, which repays the buy-in um, per player. So right. uh, if, if you're a minion and you cash, you, your first 10K that you cash goes back to the group and then you split it 65-35. There's also um, tax considerations that are kind of friendly to the book. 
so that he doesn't get left holding the bag, you know, um, for that. So, um, but yeah, yeah. That, I'm excited about that. Yeah, last year, you know, we were there and uh, one of the minions was the chip leader, right? The uh, Barstool guy, wasn't he the chip leader after day one or somewhere near there? I think may, he was one of the big chips that maybe during day one. I don't think he bagged chip lead. I, I think Gavin um, Gavin Renault actually might have bagged the chip lead on one of those days. Is that right? Do you remember that, Ben or Gene? I do. I mean, I remember bumping into him. Uh, I think it was early in day two um, when he was was uh, he was losing some of that massive stack and he was trying to kind of regroup. And so he he had bagged a ridiculous stack on day one. And um, he uh, I mean, he's a Gulf Coaster. I don't, he wasn't a minion, was he? He wasn't a minion, but nice. I love Gavin. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, great. Great to see him do well and run up a big stack. Uh, Speaking of the WSOP, um, it starts today, which is the 30th of May as we record this. Um, I believe it with the employee event, and I'm not sure, maybe the first flight of the Mystery Millions, but uh, is there anything, any events that you guys are most interested to see how they work out or you're excited about this year? Well, I'm just taking a look at the uh, the overview, which we can link in the show notes, um, the Poker News schedule. And um, I will say it's a little disappointing for me as somebody who has uh, gone out to the World Series consistently since 2015. I'm most likely going to miss the summer, so I'll be kind of uh, spectating from afar. But um, it sounds like this is going to be the, uh, they're going to have a total of 95 bracelets, the most in WSOP history. Um, and I, it sounds like they're really trying to, they're adding a couple of new events. There's a big O event, a Badoogie event. And it really sounds like they want to break the record for main event entries. Um, you know, there's going to be a good amount of satellites to the, to the main and, um, I, I, have you all heard about the different ways they're trying to juice up like the the the, the main event entries beyond that? Because because I had heard I had heard some talk about that. Yeah, so initially, I was a little. Um, I talked to somebody in the industry uh, about this recently. I kind of changed my mind. Initially, I was like, I don't think it's going to be the biggest main event ever. I just feel like the economy is kind of going down a bit. And usually, you can track uh, the economy when the economy is booming, um, the main event booms, and then uh, when it goes down a little bit, the main event goes down. But the, and the another factor that I was made, made me think it wasn't going to be the biggest is they're doing this thing called Main Mania and all the Harris Caesar where they're kind of doing uh, step satellites up to the main event. And some of those places, you know, they were only satelliting in four or five people I saw. And I think when you add that up together, it's only about, you know, we're talking 100 to 200 players that they're going to add to it. And that's not, in my opinion, one going to be the difference maker. But the person I spoke to said, yeah, they weren't that far away last year. And their thought process was an extra 100 to 200 live, plus all the stuff they're doing online, which I wasn't aware of, where they're, they're, they're really kind of pushing online satellites on their platforms. 
he thinks they're going to get over it. So um, I, I guess it'll at least be closer than what I thought. And maybe they can overcome the economy uh, doing that. I hope so. It'd be great if it is the biggest main event ever. Yeah, they were they were close last year. You can really you can really tell they they wanted it and they want it because of the switch to the new venue. So um, yeah, the uh, they had eighty six sixty three last last year, which was the second largest in history. Um, first is the the Jamie Gold main event back in two thousand six. So. I feel like they're gonna. I, I feel like they're gonna gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna predict they they break the record. What what, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think they're gonna. They're, they're definitely gonna get there. A um, little bit nervous about not having the sit and goes because I know a lot of people, uh, especially when it gets down to that time where the main event is, they're just firing off. You know, thousand forty-five ones all day long. People trying to to, to get in, so uh, that's going to be the one thing that's going to hurt them, I think. Yeah. So uh, the person I spoke to, I, I asked him about that question because I had the same thought, Gene, and he told me that they're going to increase the number of megas. Now I haven't looked at the schedule to to confirm that, but I'm assuming that's valid, uh, especially late. And the belief is that the way the megas work. You, you have to take the seat. And a lot of times in the sit and goes, people are just pocketing the cash or whatever. So possibly it might be a net positive in terms of number of entrants, because if you're looking something to do, do that. Which um, I just want to mention the sit and goes, you, you said that they're going away. I don't understand why another property, whether it's the win, Aria, maybe, maybe only the win and the Venetian have the room to do it, but Somebody should have just stepped in and said, we're going to run sit and goes all summer and, and try to take that business and, and get all those yeah. players out there. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing also. Like if somebody could, uh, even if it's not a, a another property, uh, you know, somebody uh, could rent, you know, uh, uh, that people who run tournaments can rent a, a, a big room in one of the properties within walking distance and then just run it themselves. I'm sure there's gaming type stuff that, that comes along with all that though. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but I, I think somebody, either whether it's a casino or some other entity should have jumped on that. Somebody's going to, would have made a bunch of money. Yeah, I bet you next year uh, somebody is uh, – that would be foolish if they don't. But, like, I would – if I were a secondary property and I, I kind of got a hurting tournament series, I would consider maybe devoting a quarter or half my space just to um, running sit-and-goes, especially, you know, maybe not all week, but in the prime time around the weekends and stuff when you're going to have people coming in. People like playing – you you don't have something you can play for an hour, hour and a half that replaces it, even with those megas and whatever, you know, unless they do like super turbo megas. And I'm not sure people would take, get the same level of enjoyment out of that. So um, it seems like an opportunity is out there for somebody. Yeah. Do you guys think that 95 bracelet events is just overkill? I think, you know, it's devaluing the, the bracelets. 
Um, but you know, then but then you also got the the helmets of the world that are, are trying to pile them on. Also, I'm sure Negranu, Jet, uh, Deeb, all those guys are are hungry for them. Um, but you know, the, it's going to be the same as always, in my opinion. The higher the buy-in events is what where the pros are going to win the bracelets. They're never going to. You know, I mean, it could happen, but you know, you, you got three thousand, four thousand dollar, no limit hold'em events. I think there's a good chance that uh, you know anybody could win those. But you know, twenty five k mixed events, you're gonna have nothing but the top tier of the, the poker community in those for sure. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, I. I don't know. I can't fault them for it. If, if they got the demand, you might as well, you know, offer them everything you can. 95 is a lot, but like they keep stretching it out. Are we just going to have eventually just the world series go year round? I mean, like, I know that sounds ludicrous probably wouldn't happen, but what are we, what is it now? Six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and 20, 20 online bracelets in addition to the 95. Um, oh, they're not in the 95. No, I, I, I just double checked. Yeah, it's if you look at the schedule, wow. it's 95 in-person bracelet wow. events and then 20 additional online bracelet events. And all online you guys events think online should... What's that? Yes, online events count. Do you think they should? I mean, I don't think, I don't think, I mean, there's two separate questions. It's the question that the WSOP is asking, which is how can we best uh, maximize profits? And then the question that poker fans and poker players are asking, which is uh, sort of what you mentioned, Gene, is this sort of diluting the, the quality of the bracelet? Is this somehow cheapening? Yeah. What the, what the WSOP means and, um, yeah, so I think it sort of depends on what, what question you're most con concerned with. For me, um, I tend to, yeah, I, I mean, I tend to sort of have like, there just seems to be a new a new ranking now. It's like there's sort of a ranking within the bracelet events. The higher buy-ins, they're just sort of quote unquote worth more from like a status perspective. And um, the big field events feel more like bingo. And that's one reason why the WSOP offers them is because you keep the recreationalist dream alive um in these small field high really good structured tournaments filled with pros uh, Rex are not going to have much of a chance so i think it's about try to trying to catering to different types of customers so um yeah i don't have a strong preference either way I, I just i just enjoy seeing how it how it plays out from from year to year i don't really like the i don't like the possible ghosting aspect of the online bracelet. I mean, you know, it, 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 nobody can tell whether you're sitting there playing and you got three buddies looking over your shoulder. So it's four heads against one, you know. Um, so I, I don't think the, the online bracelets are as valuable as the in-person ones. That's a humble two cents worth. Yeah, that's a good point. Um... I almost like you mentioned, Ben, I wouldn't, I, I would kind of prefer if they kind of tiered it 
we, you know, in our head, we kind of recognize it in those tiers, but if they, they somehow made that kind of official, like, you know, online bracelet or um, high roller bracelet or, or whatever, um, and there was that distinction, you know, in that categories of, of tracking, because yeah, people could ghost. Uh, I also think that online, you know, versus like the, you're talking about the $300 gladiator and the $500, um, buy-in events as a series where all the recs have a shot at it. But I, I think the online events might be as tough as some of those higher buy-in events. Like generally there's some crushers, um, that come up at the top but, and the ones that don't, they're accused of doing exactly what you said, Gene, right? I, I think last year there was a guy that was like, wait a second, this guy came from nowhere and, and he ran over people and played optimal and. He won the bracelet. I forget. You guys remember that controversy last year? Some players were upset that played with him. Well, I mean, this is really getting to just the the difference between online and live, and the the potential pitfalls and cheating opportunities that exist online versus live. And I, I can't, I don't, I don't recollect what you're referencing, Bill, specifically. But you know, there have obviously been some so much. There's been so much conversation about real-time assistance and ghosting and, you know, I, on the high, the, I think of it in terms of the high rollers, like Ali Amsirovic, Jake Schindler, all, all of that conversation. So yeah, that's not going away. If anything, it's going to, it's going to accelerate. And um, that all just maps onto this discussion of like, like what can the WSOP do to, to protect its brand and protect the, the game integrity and the online space. It's, and it's hard. It's and it's something that every site has to to deal with. It's getting tougher, tougher and tougher. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the it was if I'm uh, I'm going off of spotty memory, but I feel like Jeremy Alsmus brought it up, and the guy that ended up winning, and Jeremy went deep in that. The guy that ended up winning maybe had no results prior to that, and I, I think it's had very few results afterwards, and he kind of brought that up and then there was never anything really proven but yeah it was definitely controversial at the time yeah, yeah i do remember something about that also yeah. and the other side of the coin what if you are a wreck and you just run really hot and you you kind of by accident clicking buttons making like good plays and then everybody tries to tarnish your your victory maybe because you have good friends that are are, are upper level players like you yeah. never know like you said yeah so there's another thing that I wanted to bring up was that I saw Kev Math tweeted this yesterday and I retweeted it, but they're doing a little different format at the WSOP. You notice they got 10 a.m. start times, but the important thing is if you pre-register in every single event, your chips are going to be in play at the start of play, whereas before they had some different variations. Sometimes they're in the well, sometimes they're in play. I forget the reason why for that. Um, but this one that includes every event, including the main event. So if you're playing any WSOP events and you're trying to beat the line and register the night before, make sure you're at your seat at the beginning, unless you're okay with getting blinded off because your chips so are means, gonna be in play. So that means the lines are gonna be huge because nobody's gonna wanna get <laughs> blinded out. Right. I, I mean, I think that's a big possibility. You're exactly right. And the main yeah. event, similarly, like, why would I buy? Normally, I'd buy in in advance and maybe kind of leisurely get over there, but I don't want to lose any chips in that. And I, that happened to me before. We were sweating, 
Chris Canan was at the final table of a different WSOP event. We'd asked the floor. He told me and another guy who were playing that day that our chips weren't coming out of the well. And we just watched Chris for a while. And then we went by our table and saw that um, one, they'd been playing fast and lost more chips than I thought I would lose in that situation. And two, in fact, my chips were being played. So that was very frustrating. Well, to kind of round things off, um, y'all want to just give a, a rest in peace to Mr. Branson. Uh, I know that's a, a tough spot for to lose somebody of that stature. Uh, but man, what what a life, huh? What, what a, he's definitely a, a legend. Yeah, I mean, Doyle has a. It's probably the biggest figure in poker, you know. Um, certainly, some people maybe in their careers or you know their legacies might you know surpass him at a point. But I, I think he's the biggest. It is interesting to me though. Um, I'm I'm not gonna say anything bad about the deceased, but I think early on in poker, there's some. Um, maybe questions about game integrity and all these kind of things. And when a lot of these road gamblers um, pass, you know, they're kind of anointed as, as these great guys. And I'm not saying Dole shouldn't be, and, and maybe he is not the same as some of the other guys, but um, there's definitely a different history of poker and they kind of straddle the bit where it was less mainstream. It was uh, behind closed doors and maybe a lot of other stuff was happening and it came into the regular, Um, you know, there's some great stories from Doyle and other people, but sometimes I wonder when these old school guys pass away and that that there's this overabundance of, you know, like what a great figure he was. Like, I don't know. I reserve judgment a little bit on some of those. Doyle, I want to be clear, I'm not necessarily impugning Doyle, but just that group in general, because I do think Doyle was probably one of the uh, guys maybe a little above the fray in that, but you don't really know. Yeah. Well, and one of the things is it was always uh, I found tough was, when, of course, when we had the online rooms, I still got Doyle's room hats and stuff. Uh, I, I don't understand how his room didn't take off. I mean, you know, you had the fish tank, Scott Fishman's online site, but I, I don't know why th- that one wasn't successful, but, you know, it uh, is what it is. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. uh, he, uh, it, it's going to be interesting in terms of legacy. The, you know, obviously there's, there's lots of, there's lots of, um, yeah, memorials and now and 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 I and I'm excited to see. I think he finished filming a document. There's gonna be a doc, Doyle documentary coming out. I'm not sure when, but that that'll be very interesting to see how they address that question of and of his legacy and how they present him in that in that documentary because because that has a lot of potential, I think. And so I hope it it's it's fair to to the different phases of his of his career because there are so many. Do you know the platform for that? That's good. Uh, no, I mean, I I, I want to say Justin Young, who is a he's a poker pro turned filmmaker. He was involved, and um, I, I can't remember which uh, 
like who, what, what I don't even know if it's if it's settled where it's going to be coming out, but they they did yeah, finish shooting it. Hopefully it's mainstream, you know, like it, it would, there's some, I love 30 for 30 on ESPN and, and I've always wondered why they haven't kind of, kind of jumped into some of these poker stories and stuff, you know, that, that could make some fascinating 30 for 30s. Um, so the, the producer you know. is, the producer is Jason here, H-E-I-R, and he is, um, he's one of the, he was the director of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. So, um, yeah, I mean, that alone excites me and I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where, where the documentary is going to come out, but, I, but it sounds like it's a first class, first class from a production standpoint. All right, guys. Well, uh, you want to go ahead I, well, I got one last thing I want to talk about. Um, okay. I wanted to talk about poker tournament uh, formats, uh, specifically ours. We're trying out a brand new format, the Golden Ticket at MGM, June 8th through the 11th. And I want to let people know those details. The structure has been posted, and those details have kind of been made concrete. So the way that is going to work, it's never been done before. It's a first-time event. If you make it through day one, you make it into the money on day two, you're going to come back and every table is going to do essentially a flip and go before day two starts. And the winner of each table then goes and draws tickets. Every single table is going to have a winner and every ticket is going to be a winner. And at least 2000 will be the minimum prize and the golden ticket will be 20,000. It'll also be a $10,000 silver ticket. So before day two, you all get to, um, you know, have a shot one and nine, one and eight, depending on how many on your day two table at winning at least 2K. You guys, one of the reasons we did this is we wanted to try something a little different than the mystery bounty and give people, there seems to be a, a desire for new formats and different things in poker. I like the idea of you starting day two, uh, you know, with all these people already having one, you're not just in the money. Some people are additionally higher. I feel like the action will be kind of crazy. Are there any formats that you guys are excited about? You know, golden ticket, you're welcome to say that, or, you know, mystery bounty or, or, or whatever. Do you think that's good for poker or you think uh, um, maybe we're, we're getting a little bit out of the line and getting a little too gambling? Well, again, for me, it's not, it's not, I don't feel like I have like a, a horse in the race, <laughs> someone who, who, who doesn't really play, play too many tournaments. And, and I think it comes back to um, catering or attracting different parts of the player pool, you know? And so you, you the, the pros are always going to want top heavy formats for obvious reasons. And the recs are, um, you know, they're, 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 they're more interested in the fun factor. At least that's sort of the stereotype. And so things like bounties and, um, you know, in, innovative formats, they are, I think, going to, going to appeal more to Rex and less to pros, um, in, in the short term, maybe, you know, maybe from a growing the game standpoint, it's, it's, it's good for the, for the industry. I, I speaking personally, like I would, uh, yeah, I think it would just be for more fun I'm, uh, to to hop in 
a golden ticket or a mystery bounty type type format because I because I haven't done it before. And even something as simple sim, as um, simple as bounties is nice just to mix it up for me. But I but again I don't I don't I don't play much and and I I um, I don't have like a strong preference either way. Yeah, I, I mean Ben basically summed it up. The the regular rec players are gonna like it. The pros who are analyzing the, the rake and you know where's this money coming from and is it coming out the prize pool? They're all gonna frown on it. You know, it's it's interesting. I went back and thought about the mystery bounty. So when I believe the wind did that first. Do you guys know? Uh, I, I th in my head, I think the wind did a mystery bounty first. But I remember when the WSOP came out with it. Every there's like you said, Ben. A lot of the pro and Gene kind of analyzed it. Okay, well, this percentage of the prize pool is just randomly pulled, whereas you're taking it out if I finish first or second, or it's going to diminish my potential earnings. And there seemed to be like a lot of criticism of it. And that lasted, I think, maybe until the videos started coming out of people pulling these tickets, including pros. And I haven't really heard any criticisms of the bounties. It's almost like they recognize it as, a, you know, just like kind of a one-off. Like it's a, a fun, different format. And, you know, you might sacrifice a little bit if you happen to run deep, but there's some benefit to it. Hopefully the golden ticket, I, I think, our little twist on it is you can still have a chance at those prizes if you make day two and you're not a player that may knocks out 20 people or whatever like that. Like every player has an equal shot. So if you're a rec player, you, you know, the pros have kind of figured out as well. I think the way to game the mystery bounties and to play that there's different strategies and they max, maximize that. Whereas a rec, they're all on the even playing field. It might even benefit those wrecks that just sort of like men cashing a lot. Like this should be everybody that's one of those should try and get here. You know, I, I'm curious if the bubble changes too, but I would think we would, people might play tighter on the bubble because not only are you getting that men cash, but you have the potential for a really big cash. If you just get in, even with one chip, you know, maybe we should call it the Alan Kessler golden ticket event. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's everything for me. Um, yeah. You guys have any others? No, I'm good. No, I'm good. So let's go. Let's go get our. Let's go get our guest. Yeah, thanks, Gene. So I'm really excited to have uh, with us today, Steph No. Um, so Steph, uh, Steph and I, we met in in New Orleans at at Harris, and um, he is a, an avid poker player and a writer. So so he started writing about the NBA as one of the first members of the Atlantic back in 2016. Uh, he focused specifically on the Chicago Bulls, um, and now he writes for the Sporting News. And uh, back in the, the mid-2000s, he also wrote about um, the World Series of Poker for Poker News back from back in 2006 to 2008. 
So I am really excited to have a conversation with you, Steph, about probably poker first and then basketball. Um, but before we, we get into, into that, we, uh, you know, we miss you down here in New Orleans, and I'm just wondering how life in, in Atlanta is treating you. That was quite the intro, Ben. I, I didn't know that you were uh, Google stalking me. <laughs> you got some oh, I went, I went, you know, I went uh, somewhat deep, somewhat deep, as you'll see. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I moved to Atlanta back in August. I was in New Orleans for, I don't know, maybe like seven years or something. And as anyone can tell you who spent time in both cities, uh, Atlanta sucks and New Orleans is way better. But yeah, I had to move for family. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I haven't been in the poker room as much of the regulars who listen to this podcast probably notice uh, ever since I had kids. It's just, Bill, you know this. It's such a such a time suck. And Gene, you have one too. So um, yep, but that's what's been going on with me lately and why you have not seen me in the Harris poker room where I used to spend all of my time. For sure. Well, we, we do miss you down here. Um, and I, I, I'd like to just kind of go all, all the way back if we could, in terms of your, your connection to poker. Um, so how, how did you first, how did you first get in, get into poker? Uh, I mean, same story as everyone else, you know, moneymaker era. I started playing, you know, just home games with my friends and I would beat them all out of their $5. And I was like, you know, let's see, let's see how far we can take this thing. Um, you know, when I graduated college, uh, I was, I went to college, um, in the Bay area, there was a poker room with only limit hold'em. They had the big game was the six twelve game. That was the game that I went bust in many times, <laughs> six twelve limit hold'em. Um, but yeah, by the time I was graduating, um, the job market at the time was not great. And I was making, I don't know, like 18 bucks an hour grinding this limit game. And I thought that was like the life. <laughs> so um, took a $2,000 roll to Vegas the first time I was out there. Uh, immediately busted it playing the 1530 limit game at the Bellagio, which at the time I thought was super tough. But looking back at it now. Uh, that was like such a soft game is such a bad sign that I couldn't beat that game. Um, yeah. And then um, after I went bust, I did some other stuff, other random stuff, but I always just like played poker on the side, gave it another go. Actually. Um, yeah. In 2006, when I really started to think about playing professionally again, I was in Biloxi and the games at the bow at that time were just amazing. And I was crushing those games. Uh, you didn't have to be good to to crush those games back then. And that's when I was like, okay, let's give Vegas another shot. Went back out there with another two grand. And I guess I ran hot. Like a lot of people that become professionals, I think that's like kind of a thing that gets overlooked is you probably run hot when you have that first streak. Um, so my first year out in Vegas, I did really well. And then ever since then, yeah, I just played for maybe like 15 years or something, you know, as a living. So yeah, I want to I want to get into that a little bit. Um but but before we do, like what um what was the initial attraction to poker? Was it the competition, the money, the camaraderie? Like what sort of hooked you on the on the game? Oh, uh, I think it's like most people that get into poker is we just really like games. We like figuring games out. The competition of course is part of it, but just the st strategic element too. That's what attracted me too to basketball, which we'll get into more is um, I mean, people watch basketball for different reasons, but for me, I'm really trying to figure out the strategy and like explain the strategy to other people so they can appreciate that side if that's what they're into. And if they're not, that's totally fine too. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
So one, one reason I, I wanted to have you on is uh, there aren't, so that we've tended to have a lot of um, tournament players on the, on the podcast. And, and I, I, you know, I think in some of the poker world in some ways is a story of like two cultures. You have, you know, tournament players, cash game players, obviously a lot of overlap. Um, but you, you were largely uh, a cash game grinder. And so I would love to just kind of, hear you talk about I, I got I guess it was that second trip out to Vegas like your early 20s um you are committed to making this cash game grind work but like why Vegas and how did you navigate that terrain I mean game selection must have been so important um you obviously have like a lot of games to choose from but you also have I would assume some tougher regulars so like how did you navigate that that terrain back in like the mid 2000s as a cash game grinder well you have to remember that i mean chris moneymaker really had made things take off in the poker world but even back then what was that like 2003 was moneymaker even back then like the idea of being a professional poker player people still didn't really know quite what that was it was on it wasn't until like a couple years later when poker really started growing in popularity that people were like oh i can actually turn this into a job and I had a friend, uh, it was more like a friend of a friend that was a professional poker player. He was a 1530 limit holding grinder. Um, and I didn't meet him until maybe like a year after Moneymaker. But he really showed me that, you know, you can actually make a living doing this and this can be a job. And he was in Vegas and he was kind of, uh, he provided me like that first sort of mentorship. I think that's so important to even like today, if you're getting started, you know, like, Having somebody that can give you shortcuts and show you exactly what path you need to go on. I mean, if you don't have that, it just it's like almost impossible to make it. So that's why uh, I kind of got this kernel in my mind that I could do it. As far as Vegas goes, uh, yeah, I just had family out there. My sister went to law school out there. So um made sense from that perspective. And uh, you're talking about game selection. Yeah, game selection was not important back then, man. Like the games were so ridiculously soft. Um, you basically just had to like wait to get two pair better and then people would put a thousand big blinds in with top pair bad kicker so were you you just picked i'm trying to remember where you grinded a lot was it at the bellagio or did you just go to the casinos that had the best uh cappuccinos or the the comfiest seat (laughs) how did you choose where to play uh so the casino with the best cappuccino is definitely the win and that was a reason why I would go there some mornings. So I was tired and I, I wanted a really good cappuccino. But uh, most of my time was spent grinding at the Bellagio because back then when I first moved there, they didn't have a 1-2 or a 1-3 game. Their smallest game was 2-5 with a 500 buy-in. And it was also like the most popular casino if tourists went there and they didn't know that there was no 1-2 or 1-3 game. So they'd be forced into playing the 2-5 game. So that for a long time, for like all of the 2000s, that 2-5 Bellagio game was by far the best game in town um you know it wasn't that big because again like it's 500 max but uh yeah you could still do really really well in that game and then um yeah i mostly played two five when i was in vegas uh some 510 as well the bellagio 510 was also like an amazing game um but i just stuck to the big casinos you know when venetian aria when it did open that was a little bit later and um bellagio and uh tournaments i mean tournaments they can be seductive. They can be tempting for for all of us, even for cash game players. W- were they tempting for you to just be like, hey, 
I'm going to fire this 1500, this 5k and try to, to, to hit a big score. Or was that not, was that not um, a temptation for you? There are a bunch of reasons why I never got into tournaments. One, I am not very good at them and I like winning <laughs> Two, Like I never ran hot. Like all my friends that became tournament grinders, they all ran hot in the beginning, had some big score. And then they were chasing that high. That never happened to me. Like if you look at my hand mob, I have, $610 in earnings. You know, I told my now wife, then, you know, just girlfriend or whatever, when I was first hitting on her that I was a professional poker player. She looked me up on Hen and Mom and she's like, this guy's totally full of shit. Like, what's he talking about? Um, yeah, but uh just tournament grind never appealed to me. Like the um the feedback loop of just like winning very consistently in cash, you know, just getting that uh dopamine hit. That was really uh, what pushed me into just playing cash all the time. Bill, did you have a question for me? Yeah, well, yeah, I got a couple of questions. Uh, I'm, well, on the topic you're on right now, I wanted to say, so did you do, you would just salivate when you would see all these regular tournament players come and sit down at your cash game? Was was that ever in your mindset? Like perhaps at Harris after a weekly or something like that? Oh, in New Orleans? I mean, so back in Vegas, you know, like, right after moneymaker there were all these tournament players that were kind of like superstars on tv because if you just got on tv once you were a big deal these guys yeah. all had huge egos and they were terrible terrible poker players so like you name any of the top poker like tournament players back then i played against them in cash and you know i saw them like lose all of their cash winnings but as tournament players got much much better like in the last five or ten years that's definitely not the case. Like I, I have respect for tournament players that jump into the cash scene now. As far as like the Harris tournament players, um, I don't know. That's a good question because like I'm I'm a morning grinder, which they're very. That's also very intentional. Like um, Ben, you asked me about game selecting before. I think that's a common mistake that a lot of people make. Maybe tournament players too, but they assume that you have to like play from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. against all the drunks. Which I mean, yeah, that's good game selection but also like if you play in the morning like professional poker players are extremely lazy and uh <laughs> the good players just don't play in the morning like the, you don't you don't get the random like spewing people but i did play with a lot of tournament players because we all play in the morning too and like just just the worst time basically to play is you know evening um that's that's when you get like a real mix of like nits pros and people who are not drunk and that's when most people play which i think again is like a pretty big mistake and that was your was that your schedule in vegas as well were you doing on the morning grind back in vegas or no uh i was doing both i was doing okay. graveyard and um morning too sometimes so i had i had um yeah one uh before we get to nola uh one WSOP related question because right around like 2006 to 2008, you started freelancing. Um, so how did that come about? Like, how did your, how did your, um, the poker playing lead to poker writing or is that, was that the case or, or, or did you always have a desire to write about poker? Um, like how did that play out? Well, I always did have kind of an interest in writing, but I'm not formally trained in any way. I'm not, I'm not like you, Ben. I don't have the, uh, the big brain, big writing brain. Um, yeah, but I just saw like a posting on 2 plus 2. I was a big 2 plus 2 poster back in the day. And they said that they were hiring, you know, tournament reporters or whatever for Poker News. This was back when Poker News was very small too. I think I was like the, maybe like the sixth or seventh employee there. Definitely like within the first 12 people that they ever hired. 
Um, yeah, and I just I wasn't like good enough to play for a living yet, so I definitely needed some job. And I mean, I thought it sounded really cool. I was like a huge poker fanboy back in the day too, before I started playing professionally. And the uh, idea of you know interviewing. Chris Ferguson and Alan Cunningham and all these guys I thought was like amazing. Now I'm very, very jaded, but uh, yeah, you know, back when you're like 22 and you have a chance to move to Vegas and do that. I mean, that's like a total dream job. Yeah. I, I mean, I can relate to that as somebody who, who spent five summers, um, you know, freelancing out there and, and interviewing some of the, some of the quote unquote legends. And, and then the, the, then the, the legitimate legends, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, you, 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 the, you, the blinders kind of come off a bit and you're, you're hit with it. It becomes a little awkward when you, when these guys you worship ask you for buy-ins. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed like you, you, you wrote pieces about, you know, all kinds of folks from Daniel Negreanu, Michael Misragi, Cindy Violet. I mean, are, are there any, any memories from those early years that jump out or any stories that jump out looking back? Oh man, there's quite a few. So I mean, I really put these guys on a pedestal before I got to meet them. And I thought, you know, this was back when poker was all about reading someone's soul and like live reads and all this stuff. So I remember the first time I watched Howard Letter, I was like studying him. I was just like staring at him and taking notes and figuring out how can I be as good as this guy? And for the whole tournament, he was just watching ESPN. He wasn't paying attention at all. And that was a, you know, that was kind of like a disappointment. I was like, oh, okay. Like these guys actually are not you know, just like mind readers or whatever. Um, yeah, just other funny moments. Um, seeing these guys, you see these guys at their worst, which is kind of interesting, you know, like when they've busted 20 straight tournaments and you just see them muttering to themselves in the hallways. Uh, one time I had to interview um, Mike Matisau after one of these runs and he just like the answer to every question was like, all you have to do is just not blow up. All you have to do is just not blow up. And I was like, okay, <laughs> which is actually good advice. But um, it's just telling that these guys are just like so fried by the end of the series, you know, and they're very human. I think that's also like a thing that I've learned about, you know, talking to basketball players is they say that the best sports stories don't involve sports at all. It's more just about capturing the human element in all of these athletes and all these people that you worship in general. That's like so, so true for poker and for basketball, you know, just seeing these guys, the humanity. I think that's, it's also kind of like what draws people to poker too, is we all share this. It's like such a, such a phenomenon that you can only understand if you're in the community, if you are playing, if you're getting your brains beat in, you know, for three months straight. Um, and just like sharing that is uh it's such a bonding experience i think that's why people are so addicted to poker and you know the people that play for sure yeah and, and i mean sorry but go ahead bill yeah well i wanted to ask about um you mentioned mentorship and how important it was to you do you remember anything any specific tips or anything that you first got out of that that relationship with that player who kind of took you under their wing uh, that stand out you know that still kind of valuable today or was it more just like bankroll management or, or what games to play or what what did that entail so at the time when i met this guy i mean he was the only person i knew doing it for a living so i thought he was amazing you know i thought he was on ivy's level or something but in retrospect i mean this guy was probably like a losing player or uh, not a losing player but well definitely like a couple years after the boom but um 
Yeah, like he he didn't last as a professional very long. Um, so like as far as strategy stuff, I probably didn't learn that much from him. But just as far, I mean, this was like things were so so basic back then, you know, just like this is how you tip a dealer. This is uh, how you, you know, you should always tip the floor man. You should, you know, look around the room and game select. Like just like things that are we take for granted now that are uh like ridiculously basic but it just like people didn't know anything about poker back then okay and how was the transition for you from vegas to nola you know both in terms of life stuff like how did that come about and then also yeah just your sense of the the games i mean i can remember you talking a little bit contrasting the biggest games with with the nola games but yeah what was that what was that transition like for you that transition was pretty tough, uh, to be honest, because, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, like just from a size standpoint, you know, the games at Harris, there's no middle game really. It's either like you play the one three, which, you know, you can get to like a fifteen hundred max buy-in or whatever, like with the stacks on the table, or it's like the gigantic PLO game that they have. There's not really like a so I I mean I was playing like two five and five ten like I said there's there's not really that level of game in New Orleans unless you you know go to private games which I never got invited to <laughs> so it wasn't an option for me um, so that was hard but um, I mean the games are still awesome you know you can still make a really good win rate much 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 higher than if you were playing the same stakes in Vegas um, yeah and like for whatever reason Vegas attracts way more pros especially international pros like you'll see tables you'll see you'll just be in vegas one month and like 50 euros will come in for two weeks and you'll see them all the time because all they're there to do is grind and you have to play with like four of them at your table every single day which sucks doesn't really happen in new orleans which is nice um also just the games in general are like um way way more laid back in new orleans as, as far as just having good conversations with people like in Vegas, you go there. If you, if you guys ever go there on vacation or whatever, people are listening and there's all these, like, I mean, it's terrible games. It's like these 20 something year old kids, now 30 somethings, I guess, but they never talk, put their headphones on. Uh, if you ask them a question, they think it's like, you're trying to get an edge on them or something, you know, and they just give you this like robotic answer. And you guys have played with me before, you know, that like, uh, I'm trying to be friendly with people trying to like ask them how they're doing, how their kids are doing this stuff. Um, yeah, so it's definitely an adjustment for me. So I had, I had one, just one more poker related question. Um, but Bill, Gene, did y'all have anything you wanted to, to follow up on? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask, um, did you, uh, ever play online and, uh, how was it through COVID not being able to to grind, uh, did did you play online during COVID, and how did you handle that? Yeah, like around COVID was when I had my first kid, so I was just playing less in general. So I did play online a little bit, but not really that much. But um, yeah, uh, online is so much more of a technical game, whereas like live players are way way more focused on exploitative poker. Uh, I think I'm like okay at both, like probably better than most live players at like playing a GTO strategy, but definitely not on par with 
you know, these guys that are grinding um, all day. And I, I think that's like a huge part of being a successful poker player too, is like being very honest with what you're good at and what you're bad at. And if you are not honest with yourself, then you're going to get crushed. So I know that like the online streets are not my, my forte. So uh, yeah, when I do play online, you know, I, I play pretty small. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm pretty well. I want to I want to hear a little bit about the games that we did share. I was trying to to, to get you to comment a little bit on uh, that dynamic where I felt like you played in the mornings at Harris, and I remember um, a lot of time the tournament bust outs would all jump in the cash games. Was that something that you look forward to, um, or that was just just another Wednesday? Did you bring me on your podcast, Bill, so that I could call you a fish? Is that what you're trying to get out of me? <laughs> uh, sure, sure. You can call me a fish. No, you're definitely you not a fish, Bill. You were a tough putter. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting because like, uh, when I was playing at Harris, I was really, really trying hard to keep my threat level as low as possible. Like, You guys were one of the few people that knew that I was like playing, you know, I guess mid-state. I mean, it's not that impressive, but I was you know, playing like professionally for a long time. I was trying to, you know, just like be very friendly and always buy in for only a hundred big blinds. So people wouldn't be scared and all this other stuff. But now that like I don't live there anymore and I'm not really playing that much, I can like be very honest about what I was actually doing, which is kind of refreshing. So yeah, to answer your question, Bill, um, yeah, there, there are definitely certain tournament players that made the cash games really juicy. There are other players that, um, you know, they just buy in for a hundred bucks and bust out and leave. Um yeah, but I mean, I, I don't I don't want to name names still. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I'm not asking you to name names. And it wasn't about me specifically. It was just I I always felt like if I busted a tournament early and I was jumped in the cash game, like I was kind of tracking to see who was busting out or not. And sometimes it could be a good day or it could be a bad day. And I was just wondering if your experience uh, um, had some of that, you know. Yeah, I mean, there were players that I don't even know how much is the daily at Harris, like 140 bucks or something. Yeah, it ranges about 140 to 200, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Like they'd bust out of the tournament and then they'd drop like, you know, 1500 in 2 hours in the cash games. So, when you only have two or three tables going, that definitely impacts your bottom line. So, to answer your question like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if I could just say, I mean, from my perspective, um, yet my impression of you, Steph, was was you always were very unassuming. And and one thing that I noticed was that you, you know, I, I think ego play, can play such a big role in poker. And um, for some, for some people, and and for some of us at different times, it, it might be more important to be perceived as to be a winning player. It's like to just like have people see you with that big stack. Um, than to actually be be a winning player, and um, you you know you you always struck me as somebody who was unassuming. You never bought in huge. You never tried to like threaten the tourists. You were always willing to you know to to talk. And um, so from my perspective, your strategy of of like not coming off as a pro it worked really well. And from a um, from sort of a social perspective. Uh, I thought it was always nice to play with you, um, just just like regardless of wins and lo and, and losses. So, oh, thanks, man. Um, you are like, 
uh, one of those rare players who's like, you're good at the game and you're good for the game. I think it's really hard to do both. Um, yeah. because you know, winning players, they take, they take that, that money off the table. It's, and, um, that's, that's part of poker. So yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to express that because it's sometimes it's hard to, to see ourselves from the outside. So this is, that's just sort of one, one additional perspective for me. Yeah. Thanks, but I, I appreciate agree with that. I feel the I, same I way actually just... about both of you guys, you know, like both of you guys are, uh, really tough players, but you keep things friendly. Like when you lose, you don't act like a baby. And when you win, you know, you don't rub it in people's faces, except when you beat each other, then you rub it in each other's faces. <laughs> That's but, important. You know, that yeah, yeah. I was going to mention the irony of it is you, you, you wanted to not appear to be a pro, but you were behaving the way every pro should behave, in my opinion, in terms of like creating a good atmosphere at the table and not intimidating the people that are just there to, to gamble it up. So I, I agree with Ben's sentiments. Yeah. I mean, so I actually do have like a pretty big ego, but <laughs> I try to really keep it under wraps and keep it contained. I think that's where I get a lot of my edge too. I think all poker players have a big ego. Otherwise you wouldn't be playing the game. Um, but I do think also that like you can make it work. There's, there's multiple ways to win. Like you don't have to take my approach. The counter example I would give, I don't know if Josh listens to your podcast, <laughs> but uh, Josh was the other morning grinder with me. And we were, I, I would bet a lot of money that we were one and two in terms of win rate, like in the morning games. Uh, completely, completely opposite approaches. Like you could not get more different. Josh would buy in as big as possible. He would be really antagonistic to as part of his strategy, you know, and it was a good strategy. I mean, the guy, like I played with him so much, he crushed the games, you know? Um, yeah. So it's just interesting to me. Like for me, um, I want people to be very, very wrong about me and not correct them. Like I know a lot of regulars thought that I was not very good. They thought that I was like really tight and I just played the nuts or whatever. I can say this now because again, like I don't really play there anymore. I was probably like one of the bluffiest players, like in the poker room. You know, I played really, really tight. That's true. But if you play tight, people have the image that um like on later streets you're also really tight, which I was not. And I would just like get away with murder. Um, so like that's just you know, if I corrected people and said like if I'd shown a lot of bluffs, which I definitely could have to make people look bad then like I would totally lose that edge, you know? So that's like not when you're playing for a living, when you're playing to like support your family, you can't do stuff like that. You can't like allow your ego to get in the way of winning as much money as possible. So I, yeah, that's the way that worked for me. Certainly if you show a lot of bluffs and you have a lot of ego, you know, you can win a lot too, but um, it's just like way easier for me to do that. And like, yeah, never correct people when they talk shit about me at the table or away from the table or whatever. Yeah, and I can still remember a conversation we have uh, had about it. I don't know if it was an article that you ever wrote about this tendency in poker um, for players to, to like be correct the correct the fish, <laughs> be like like oh you might have won this pot, but here let me tell you uh, what you yeah. did wrong in this hand. You know what I mean? Which is just it's, like uh, it's a pure ego play, right? Yeah, it's uh it's from the movie The Incredibles. It's called they call it monologuing, where you do your evil villain monologue where you explain your entire plan. And it's just like so stupid. Like you're giving away your strategy for the benefit of like you feeling better about yourself. So you'll yeah, you'll never ever see me doing that at a poker table. 
So I want to get I want to get into basketball, but but one last poker question. Um, you know, I know you've been writing almost exclusively about basketball, but um, but in March of this year, you covered the Triton Poker Vietnam, and you yeah. focused on. Um, you wrote a piece about Jeff Bosky, who's a popular blogger, streamer, and then Mark. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Rebuthan Weasel, who who to like. Like, I don't know, he like got into one of the big tournaments cheaply he, and he rolled into it and he won okay. like I don't remember what it was, like one point over a million, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering, um, you know, what interests you about poker, like the culture of poker nowadays? Do you do you plan to continue write, writing about it? Um, like where where are you at in terms of of your relationship to poker? Yeah, so like I said, I'm not really playing that much anymore, but the community aspect is like just keeps on pulling me in, you know. <laughs> um and I think that's kind of cool that right now especially there's a lot of discussion in the community about um you know, there's this whole thing with like Doug Polk recently about like bullying and being vulnerable and trying to just like improve yourself um which yeah, I was falling, even though like I'm not in the scene anymore, really. As far as like writing stuff goes, I do like writing these profiles, like those stories that I did. These guys won a tournament or cashed or whatever. Uh, and the stories were not about how much money they won or what hands they played. It was just like about them as people. And I think that's what poker media is really missing these days. Is like back when Moneymaker first happened. Maybe it's just like a nostalgia factor because when you're young these things really stick with you more than when you get older. But to me, like the broadcasts on ESPN were so much better. Like the first five years between moneymaker and whoever won in 2008, um, because they focused on the personalities of people rather than like showing the odds of which hand is going to win. And like, uh, just like talking about the strategy stuff. I mean, if you want to, especially if you want to bring new people into the game, I think that like the people that play poker have such interesting stories if you're into poker, you have a very, very distinct personality, you know, like we're all kind of people that like to try to find an edge, try to find loopholes, try to avoid conventional thinking. And if you do those things, like if you are a conventional thinker, you're probably going to just get destroyed, crushed in, in the game and just not play anymore. Um, yeah. So like trying to find things that, like I said before, that element of humanity that we all share. I mean, that's like, that's really what I'm trying to do with my writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I could talk all day about, you know, all of us could talk about the, all the, the colorful characters, interesting stories in poker. Um, but I guess I, I suppose, I, I think this is a good chance to, to pivot to your writing about basketball and just your approach to writing in general. Cause you said this a couple of times, um, the importance of focusing on like the, the human element uh, when you're when you're interviewing a subject, getting their stories. So, um, yeah, could you talk a little bit about how you found your way into freelancing about basketball? And um, and I'm also just interested if you could talk a little bit about your approach to like eliciting those, eliciting that humanity and 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 finding the the humanity in the in the stories that you write about. Um, I mean, I know you started with the Chicago Bulls, but um, but yeah, just in your in your writing about basketball in general. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just a huge basketball fan growing up, grew up during the Jordan era. And, um, you know, there's so many blogs out there. 
I I started becoming really active on an SB Nation blog called Bloggable and asked the guy who ran the site if I could just write a couple articles just for fun. They were all terrible. <laughs> Please do not go back and look at them. But I really enjoyed doing it. I kept on doing it. It got a little bit better, a little bit better. And um, The Athletic started in 2014. So I'd been doing just like some stuff, some really tiny stuff on a blog, but I've been getting some traction. Um like among super diehard fans in Chicago. So they offered me a job there. I was the fourth employee at The Athletic, and now we have, I don't know how many employees, but they just sold to the New York Times for $600 million, like two years ago. So it really built up. Um, yeah, as far as my process goes, um, what is my process? <laughs> I don't really know. I guess I'm just like trying to make the game more accessible for fans um trying to explain like little intricacies that they might not catch that kind of stuff yeah i mean there's like a lot of strategy in basketball that i think people don't see because the game moves really fast and when you watch things on espn it's just like so so narrative driven there's not really any depth of analysis like the nfl i mean people know everything about the nfl you know like if a play happens they know exactly what play it was they know like all these gaps and all this other crap i don't really know that much about football but uh, basketball is not at that level and we're, uh, we're slowly trying to get it there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, so I, I guess, and I did, uh, you know, I, I read a few of your pieces and, and one of the things that jumps out is just how prolific you are nowadays. I mean, just the NBA playoffs alone, you've written what, like 20, 20 pieces. Is that fair? I don't know. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. A lot. A lot. <laughs> so I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, are there any are there any pieces that you're especially proud of or that stand out to you as 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 you look back? Yeah, I actually have like a Google Doc of all my best stories. So like when you're writing for a major outlet, like a lot of the stories you write, just like uh, behind the curtain, I guess. Like a lot of stuff you write, you're forced to write by your editor, and you know it's like the big personalities you have to write about lebron james you have to write about the latest crazy thing that dylan brooks said and they're not terribly interesting stories to tell you the truth but then like i do get to pick um maybe like a third of my stories and those are i mean i'm like really passionate interested about that like one of the stories that i really liked that i wrote last year was about this guy spanky he's a professional sports better like what you're I, seeing I know spanky he has his own podcast I he think, has a right? great podcast yeah, yeah. What you're seeing in the last year is like with all these places legalizing sports betting is there's so many frauds in um, sports media. There's so many touts that are just like ripping people off. And so I interviewed Spanky, uh, who's like actually a pro and is really, really good at this stuff about just the pitfalls that like these really novice bettors need to avoid and how a lot of people don't realize this, but like if you are a winning sports better, you're not going to be allowed to bet at these sports books. Like they're going to flag you immediately, reduce your maximum bet down to 20 bucks or 10 bucks. You know, these guys like Spanky are trying to bet a hundred thousand, 500,000 aside. Uh, he can't do that. So like, this is like, I mean, sports books are really not good entities, you know, cause like they're just trying to essentially find the gambling addicts. That's where they get most of their revenue from. And uh, if they find anybody that is even like, remotely at risk to beat them they'll just kick them out like it's not like poker you know where like you can just sit down at a table and you can play and that's it um so it's like a yeah it's, it's kind of a rigged game and i'm 
glad that this job gives me access to talk to people like that, you know, that are just like, I, I feel like his voice really needs to be amplified because he's, he's trying to like, he, he's trying to help the common better. Yeah, for sure. It's so important to have those voices who are going to inject a dose of reality. And also, I mean, it's a version of, it's not the same as having a mentor, um, but just a more kind of a clear eyed perspective who can, who can like demystify this whole, this, it's just this massive industry that then we don't know where it's going. It's just like such an enormous development now since what, 2021, when it started opening up. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously like none of us are anti-gambling, <laughs> you know, but I do think that there's a responsible way to, to open up gambling and people just aren't putting any thought into it at all. Like there's just, there's just so much money behind it that um, like schools, universities are taking millions and millions of dollars from DraftKings. Obviously they're trying to get these students, you know, DraftKings accounts once they get old enough to gamble or even like before that kind of stuff, like you just can't do, you know, there has to be some sort of limit on, on how we do this gambling stuff. Do the the draft uh, yeah. Do the draft Kings of the world on FanDuel, do they also uh, cap those professional players like the sports book and the casinos do? Absolutely. Yeah. Let me ask you a, a basketball question real quick. I, I've read some of your articles and, and they're very detailed and, and very, like, as you mentioned, very strategy kind of oriented or some of the pieces that I read were. Do you have a background in basketball or the more you wrote about it, maybe the deeper you got into it to give you kind of that knowledge base? Because, I mean, it's, it's almost like at a, a coach level that you, you dissect some of the strategies and plays and stuff like that. Is, how did that manifest just over time or yeah i'm self-taught i'm self-taught in poker self-taught in basketball you know just like uh it's it's much harder to teach yourself in basketball because the resources are so like hard to find you know in poker nowadays if you want to get good it's like there's so so much out there but in basketball it's even worse than like it was back in 2003 for poker um, but yeah, just like watching different coaching videos, I get, I get a chance to talk to coaches now. So that's helpful if I have questions on stuff. Yeah. Would you ever want to, to get into basketball itself or would you, writing is kind of a, your passion? Like the, the coaching side? I mean, coaching front office, uh, any of that. Coach, I mean, yeah, front office stuff, like possibly. Coaching is like, uh, I think people have a huge misconception about coaching. And Ben, you can speak to this because you were a pretty high level player yourself. But um, I think people think that coaching is a lot of just like technical stuff, X's and O's, the stuff that I do. Whereas, you know, in reality, all coaches are pretty good at that stuff. A lot more of it is managing people, managing schedules, stuff like that. And if you have the best game plan, but your players, don't believe in it or don't believe in you, then it's not going to matter. And if you have like a mediocre game plan, but you have the buy-in of all of your players, then you're going to be way, way more successful. Ben, is that, is that your experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I have done a, a small amount of coaching. I, I played a lot of basketball. I played in college. Um, I actually have some friends who are current 
college coaches. And one of the things that jumps out now is, is just um, how, you know, so much of the game it's and the strategy takes place like off the court and, and, and how recruiting, and it's not just managing players, it's about managing parents and it's about getting, getting the right players to your school, you know, and that, um, yeah, that's all very tricky. So, um, that's all the stuff poker players hate, by the way, like, (laughs) you know, we hate having to, uh, be responsible for a bunch of other people. We just like being independent. So I think it would be a terrible fit for my personality. (laughs) So could I ask a question about, um, I guess, I, I guess it's related to, um, like form, you know, I think you, you've, it's really impressive how you've, how you've improved as a writer, you've created this niche for yourself and you're, you're producing this written content. Um, but you're also part of, um, you know, we're all part of this general trend away from the written word towards vlogs and podcasts. And, um, you know, when I was reading your piece about Jeff Bosky, um, this, this kind of jumped out in my head because he's, yes, he's a poker pro, but he's, he's maybe even more a content creator. So, um, you know, one of the things you, you're very adept at is like, uh, posting a, a, a minute video on Twitter and analyzing it, or just like posting some interesting content, grinding Twitter for lack of a better word. So I'm like, how do you, how are you, um, thinking about that part of your, um, your professional life? Yeah, I think all the people in sports media, like, well, most of them, I would say, they love writing. Like, you look like you look at a guy like Pablo Torre, for example, who had his own ESPN show, has his own podcast, whatever. I mean, that guy was like a feature writer for a very long time, and he still loves to write, but he never does it because there's no money in writing. Like, it's all on TV, and people don't want to read long form anymore, unfortunately. Like, I don't know when the last time you guys sat down on your phone or your computer and you read a 30 minute article on you know, with sports figure, it's probably been a very long time. So it's just like the nature of the beast is people are getting, especially young people are getting more and more of their sports information from TikTok, And it has to be less than a minute because people's attention spans are so short. So that's, yeah, that's what I've been doing a lot of lately. Um, I try to make the TikToks like pretty interesting, like much different from what other people give you where you're, you're really learning something after you watch these videos. But yeah, if people are interested in that, um, I'm trying to grow my TikTok account right now. It's at Stefano, S-T-E-P-H-N-O-H. Got to give For a little sure. point there. Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put your, you know, your Twitter or TikTok in the show notes. Um, I guess this would be the time that I must ask about the infamous uh, cat video. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Could you talk about the origin story of the cat video, Bill Jean? I don't even, I don't even know if you know what this is, but it it got pretty, pretty huge, even to the point where didn't the Bulls like show it on their like jumbotron during a game or something? I I don't know, but yeah, they're showing it. They were like uh, shouting me out on the broadcast. They were showing it on the jumbotron in the games. It was like a, uh, just like some meme where. Uh, I think the meme is called Cat Jam. It's this white cat that's bobbing his head back and forward. I think uh, Chicago Joey uses it in his streams a lot for the for the poker players out there. Um, yeah, but I would play this video of Cat Jam and this like crazy guy drumming after every Bulls win, and um, it just kind of like took off. It's just like some random stupid thing, and yeah, it got it got really big, and it was a uh, a sign that the 
Apocalypse is near. That's something that I spent the least amount of time on. Is probably going to be the thing that uh, is like the most popular thing that I ever make. <laughs> I think that that might be social media in a nutshell. Like that's like the perfect, like the perfect uh, case study in like yeah. where we are. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think I've seen it. I think it was after the winds and there was somebody drumming and uh, yeah, and that's right. Kind of doing right. A, um, like a weird song too, kind of like yeah. Jan- yeah, yep. Yeah. I I remember it. I've seen it. So we're uh, we're recording this uh, the day of Game Four, Boston Miami. Um, yeah, what, what, what do you what do you what's the story of the playoffs so far? And and could you give us a little like a little sneak preview of the finals? I mean, what jumps out to you? I, I, overall, I felt like it was really entertaining and wide open. And then this, this particular round has been kind of a disappointment for obvious reasons, been too lopsided series, but yeah, like what, what are you thinking about the playoffs so far? Yeah, I think it's been great. Like, I think it's boring when some of these past years with the warriors, they open as 70% favorites and you know that it's just going to be warriors Cavs at the end. It's like so boring to me. So I mean, the parody is cool. Like um, I think I don't, I don't know anyone that had the nuggets anyone in the national media that had the nuggets winning the title at the beginning of the year so that's kind of cool like you know you always root for charles the barkley charles barkley has been very vocal <laughs> okay I've, I've been high on the nuggets too but um they're still like outperforming even what i thought that they would do um yeah so the heat celtic series is basically over i mean no team has ever come back from 3-0 so it's going to be heat nuggets in the finals i think the nuggets are going to steamroll the heat but i thought that about every single heat opponent and been wrong <laughs> so i might as well keep the keep the streak up here um yeah i think it's probably gonna be nuggets in five or six yeah they look they look really tough um yeah. they look really tough and i'm the same boat as you i uh completely wrote the heat off S- series after series <laughs> and i will be rooting for for the heat um just because I, I tend to like rooting for underdogs, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, it's, it's great to see, um, it's great to see the nuggets get there and it's yeah. been, you know, it's been a fun, very fun playoffs. I want to talk about you guys a little bit. I know like I'm the guest, but, uh, yeah, I feel like you guys are both very interesting too. Like, you know, I, I revealed my poker strategy to all the people that I played against. <laughs> so I wonder like what your guys' strategy is too. Like, I think that we, I think you guys actually do a lot of the same things that I do, you know, where like you act very unassuming, especially, you know, I never really, Bill, I never really figured out your game. You know, it's very, you, you have a really, really interesting strategy where, yeah, I think you do something similar where you play like kind of tight, but then you do this crazy shit that nobody sees. Can you, can you reveal to me now that I don't have to play against you anymore? Uh, did I, did I have like kind of the right read there? Yeah, I think so. I think I folded too much of you on later streets and you folded too much to me on later streets. Okay, so we broke even probably, against each other. Well, you're probably ahead of me, but um, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to give away too much because I'm still kind of active with maybe uh, people listening to this, but uh, I don't play as much as I used to like tournaments, but definitely my tournament strategy is um, very tight and just pound in that image over and over and show that's, that's hands the way, and all man. that and then, 
And then later when it's necessary, I'm, I'm getting away with murder. Um, so yeah, uh, yes, I can identify with your strategy a lot. So let me, but, let um, me ask you, Bill, if uh, you, you might be like too close to Ben at this point to really know, but like when I first saw Ben in the poker room, I immediately had an image, you know, you stereotype people all the time, right? When you're playing poker. And uh, I saw this like kind of youngish looking kid. Uh, I think you are a, a backpack grinder, Ben. So I assumed that you were just going to be like this maniac that was going to try to totally run me over. And I think you also, Ben, do a great, both of you guys do a great job of like knowing what your image is and then just like doing the opposite. Do you, do you feel like, uh, Bill, when people sit down with Ben, they just think that like he's going to, he's going to constantly be spewing? I, I do think he gets action just from his image, like you, like you said, that um, gets him paid off. But I also think this about Ben, and maybe he's just so humble he's convinced me. I think Ben is a lot better player than Ben thinks he is. Um, that's I think just that's always great, been I, I'm not just saying this. I think both of you guys are like definitely you know top 10% of the people in the room as far as skill goes. Wow. Thank you. Uh, and definitely felt the same about you. Um, Ben, do you think that's fair? But, um, you're not one that likes praise and you're very humble. And, uh, but I, I share that sentiment. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that the compliment. I think my issue is about priorities at the end of the day. Um, and for me, there's been playing about playing poker and then writing about poker. And I do think what has held me back or stunted my growth from a purely poker playing perspective is this sort of meta level of like, well, what are the good stories that I can collect? How can I, you know, um, yeah, meet, meet interesting people. Um, am I sacrificing EV to just play in a game where there's, there, you know, some, some weird shit might happen and I might write it down. So that, uh, you know, as we all know, like being dialed in and being playing in flow and paying attention are so important. And so, um, yeah, I think that I there's always part of me that wonders, dude, what's my ceiling? Um, have I kind of limited my ceiling as a poker player? And, but for me, it just kind of goes back to like, what am I actually doing in the card room? And um, it ultimately is about collecting stories and writing. And my relationship to poker has changed over the years. I, <laughs> I'm kind of chuckling stuff when you describe me as like a backpack grinder, because there were definitely months where I was just like, I need to be in there and like log hours and just like collect experiences and for the same reason that you mentioned before about how, like, I think one, one way to, to tap into that humanity is to sort of have these shared experiences. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, we're all insiders in this community. So part of it was just sort of busting my chops. Let's, let's, let's get in there. And nowadays I am just like, not, I'm just not in I'm, like, I'm not in that mode. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not studying poker. I'm not trying to grind hours. Like for the simple reason that like, I just wasn't happy doing it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that the the cash game grind, which has always been kind of my proclivity, like I've always preferred that. It's just, you know, it can get tedious. And I think the, the, the more hours I logged, the harder it got. So I'm at a point now where, yeah, I'm just going in once, once a week maximum and for a couple hours and trying to just connect with folks and play a little bit. So that's always been another thing that's fascinated me about poker is just like how our relationships. So the game might change and down the road, maybe I will 
you know, maybe I will focus exclusively on like trying to to play well, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. Yeah. I think that goes back to something I was saying before too, is like, you have to be really honest with yourself and you have to check your ego, you know, like for me, I haven't played a single hand of poker probably in since I got to Atlanta. So that was back in August. So I know that like, if I went into the Harris poker room right now, I would, I would lose. I mean, if I won, it would just be because of luck. And when I was winning a lot, you know, like a couple years ago or whatever, it was because, you know, I was putting the work in, I was playing every single day. I was studying when I got done working. And if you try to take shortcuts, you know, or if you just like try to, um, try to get by on the stuff that you've learned in the past. Like I've been around the scene for so long and people that I was playing with 15 years ago, uh, way, 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 way less than 1% of them are still around because they didn't keep on like putting in that study. They didn't put in that growth. So if you, if you think that you just have like some God given natural poker talent, I mean, that might be true, but it's not good enough. You know, you have to like really stay sharp in order to win. Cause so you have to respect your opponents, man. You really do. Even if you think they're idiots or whatever, like if, if you underestimate people, like that's how I win, you know, people underestimate me. So you cannot, you really cannot underestimate the people you're playing against. Let me ask you a quick question. Y'all are both talking about the human element when you're writing stories and getting to know people. Um, but we haven't really delved into how did your family feel about you playing poker? And, and did you have any, um, like, in relationships and stuff like that? You mentioned when you started dating your, your future wife, you told her you're a professional poker player. Was that, were there any adversity in that? How, how did people react to it? So I told my mom I was studying to go to med school for six years. And then when I couldn't keep that lie up, I told her I was studying to go to law school. And then I actually went to law school for a year. <laughs> uh, immediately, you know, hated it and dropped out after a year. Uh, it's like so much more restrictive than poker. But yeah, to answer your question, like Asian parents, man, like I guess like some Asian cultures, Vietnamese people, they have like a history of gambling. But for Korean people, it is so, so frowned upon. There's no understanding. My mom still doesn't understand, you know, that, I mean, I'm 38 now. I've been play playing poker since I was 18. And obviously I'm not going to lose her house playing poker, but she, that's always what she says to me when I bring up poker is like, you know, you're going to somehow gamble my house away. <laughs> Somebody you didn't, we didn't talk about is your, your brother who um, also was, was, or maybe is playing professionally. Yeah, he's um, still playing. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, how did that, uh, I mean, I imagine it must've helped you in a lot of ways, but like, how did that figure into your own like poker journey, having him um, kind of in your corner and going through it with him? Uh, it didn't help me at all, but it helped him a lot. You know, there's this <laughs> phenomenon in basketball in all sports really where the younger brother always outperforms the older brothers. Um, and it's because the older brother like beats up on the younger brother and the younger brother really gets stronger because of all this adversity. Um, so that was definitely the case with my brother, you know, like I was a pro, he was in grad school, um, just being like a nerd, academic nerd. Uh, and he saw this lifestyle that I was, I had, and he really, really wanted it. I was, I was convincing him so much like, dude, don't do it. Like, I still say that to people that ask, you know, like poker is an awesome, awesome side hustle, awesome hobby. If you do it for a living, I mean, like I said, it's less than 1% of people that survive for any length of time. Um, so you're just playing against the odds and, you know, that's not what you do in poker. But anyway, yeah. Uh, so 
I mentored my brother um, and it certainly wasn't because of like the stuff that I taught him. He just like used the little starting seeds that I had to really grow into a great player. He's way, way, way better than I am now. He's playing like the highest games um, Where? in Texas. Yeah, Texas. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he's just like totally crushing it. Um, yeah, I don't want to give away too much of his edge either because he does the same thing as me where he tries to maintain a really low threat level. Um, yeah, but but uh, very proud of him. Does he really? That's interesting because uh, at Harris, I think sometimes people would mistake your brother for you. Yeah, and they would all the time. I felt like anytime I didn't play much with him, but I, I felt like he played very different than you. At least you know this was five six years ago. Like a, like it was a very different uh, reactive strategy on my my part when I was playing with him. Um, yeah, like I said, I mean, he does play different than me because he's better than me. <laughs> it's like the same uh, basic outline of a strategy, I guess, but he's just like so much, he's fine-tuned it so much. Gotcha. Does he play tournaments at all either or just straight cash? Uh, just cash, yeah. And like what they do in Texas too is like they do all these PLO bomb pots. So he's gotten really, really good at those. And that's actually like a huge part of people's win rates now because those pots are so massive. It's like, you know, three-way all-ins every every dealer shift or whatever. So if you just like win one of those, you're good for the day. Is there, a, is there like a viable path for you to, um, to sort of restart poker as a side hustle up in Atlanta or is that even something? That oh, yeah. You okay. So like for people who have made it this long in the podcast, uh, this is like kind of the impetus for why I wanted to come on here is there's no man. So like when I moved, when I agreed to move to Atlanta, my wife, wanted to move out here they had legal poker and these idiots they were running <laughs> their rooms put in slot machines and like a couple of weeks before we were set to move all the rooms closed down so uh yeah they're not coming back um but i need i need a place to play so if any of your listeners do have home games in gwinnett they can get me into low stakes now because i'm not playing seriously anymore um i'll give them a finder's fee give them um i don't know something Hundred bucks. That's a good game if I don't get robbed. <laughs> Gwinnett County, yeah. Yeah, I know some folks in Atlanta. I can ask around. Um, okay. Yeah, it can't be it can't be downtown Atlanta though, because it takes an hour and a half to get everywhere in Atlanta. It's got to be the yeah. north suburbs. All right. If anybody so, wants to respond in our comments too, they could probably do that, right, Ben? Uh, underneath on any of our platforms, is there a Oh, and also, don't if you get me in the game, don't let anyone in the game listen to what I was talking about the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know. I think that is one of the um, that's one of the good things about poker is you know your your relationship changes to, and it's it's such a difference when you're you know when you're not grinding for a living that or or if you're just like a weekend warrior where you're forcing yourself to log hours yeah. versus just you know like you have all this shit going on and you want to play poker. And so like, I hope you're able to find a game where you can play once a week or whatever, whatever you'd like, you know? So you're not, I mean, could you ever see yourself going back to where you were in terms of like full, full time or do you, do you see writing as the path forward for you? No, writing's a, I don't know how you feel about it, Ben, but like writing is really a dying profession. Like, especially in sports media, people get fired every three or four years. I was fired from the athletic I mean, I, I helped start the company and they just fired me during COVID. Like it was so cold blooded, but that's just what happens, you know? So 
I fully expect to get fired within the next two or three years. And last time that happened, I mean, poker really saved me because I had this thing that I could do until I found another writing job. So yeah, I mean, there's a very high likelihood that that could happen again. Um, I would start out as a losing player again, and I would just have to like grind a ton of studying and playing. It'd probably take me a couple months to start winning again, and I'd just do that until I find the next writing job. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's one of the... I feel like that's one of the initial appeals for a lot of us who going into poker is just like the... Um... I mean, my faith that the games will never die. I think I, I still have that faith. Like, I think poker will always be around, no matter. It's gonna, it's evolved, it's evolved, it's gonna continue to evolve. But I think um, that option will will always be there. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope. Yeah, I hope you're able to. Yeah, to 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 do what you want to do in terms of the of of the writing because I, I agree it's really precarious. I, I basically view my writing as a hobby that I treat as a job. I don't make any money doing it. If I wasn't teaching, then you know, then I would have to uh think about what I was what I would be doing. Um but yeah it's a weird it's a weird time right now um for so many professions for so many reasons that yeah. it's gonna just be interesting how things play out. Yeah, but I think that's what attracts people so much to poker is, you know, the freedom. Definitely for me, that's the reason why I stuck with it for so long. Um, and I think all poker players are kind of addicted, you know, to that freedom. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I would disagree with you a little bit on one thing you said, that you'd start out as a losing player. Um, oh, I 100% would. Bill, like, the, you know, after I had my second kid, I was only in the room. I was the only reason why I was in the room was to try to stay sharp, you know, so I wouldn't have to start from scratch if I ever did get fired. So yeah. I was playing maybe like three hours a week or something. And I had my first losing year in whatever, 17 years. Now, a really? lot of that was running bad, and I only lost like 800 bucks or something. But my skill level just dropped so, so fast. I mean, like I said, it's about if people are putting in more work than you, I don't care how smart you are, how much smarter you are than them or whatever, like they're going to beat you. I, I don't disagree with you, but I think uh, I I would maybe I don't know the particulars. I would probably lean more towards run bad in that situation that you went through because I feel like I don't get to play as much anymore. But the bar in terms of the cash games is not so high that a lot of the people we're playing with are doing that work and studying and whatever. I, I feel like you know it's not like quite like riding a bike certainly, but you can get back into it and get adjusted, and, and you'll be surprised that. At poker's still alive, you know, as that expression goes. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity in cash games, I think, where those folks that you're playing against are not doing that level. Maybe the Bellagio, maybe some of the tougher home games in Atlanta, but um, I think it's still alive and well. I feel like you're setting me up for a prop bet that I'm going to lose against you. You're going to continue to just destroy me. We should tell the story about uh, it was you that I did the push-up prop bet with, right? Where I lost some prop that I, I had to do push-ups in the poker room. Was was it me? I can't remember. <laughs> I think we bet like 15 push-ups on something. And I had to embarrass myself in front of everyone trying to struggle to do 15 push-ups in the back of the Harris poker room at like 12 p.m. one day. That that seems plausible. I'm not remembering it, but uh, I, I like to make prop bets every now and then. Was it like 15 push-ups in like 15 seconds? Was there a time limit? The prop bet wasn't on push-ups. I think it was on like if somebody in the tournament was going to bust, but the punishment, I didn't want to bet money because I knew I was going to lose against Bill. So the, the the payout was you had to do push-ups. 
Yeah, your your mistake, you know, and and many 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 have said this, and I will repeat it. Your your mistake was betting against Bill. Period. You just don't place any bets against Bill because you will lose. So now you know. Yeah, I'm just uh, giving away action. all of our edges here. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting your I'm putting your action on blast. I'm trying to protect the community, Bill. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. I've just run good in prop bets. I think <laughs> I think that's the situation. We'll have to think of one where I can actually win. I'm sure there's plenty. I need to do some push-ups. So um, you think of one. I, I, I'm. I don't care if I don't have an edge. I'll take the the worst of it because I need to do some push-ups. Yeah, that's the other thing I love about the poker community is like uh, you're really willing to put your money where your mouth is, which people are not at all willing to do in sports media. You know, they'll say the wildest stuff and you can bet on this stuff. You know, you can't bet on these outcomes, but they don't do it. But like, it's also a great motivator. You know, I've lost I've lost weight when I needed to making weight loss prop bets. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's like one of yeah. the awesome things about the community for sure. That was, you know, one of the things back when I was you know, doing volume challenges and Bill and I and a couple others, we had prop bets that were all sort of supportive. You know, it was one of those things you get punished only if you don't hit your goal. And that, that, that really was a, it was a good motivator um, to sort of push through. I think we all hit our goals on those, right? We did. Um, I was losing weight. You were doing volume. And uh, I think Joel might've been in with us and he lost weight too. I think. Yeah. Mike Korchoff. That uh, was that was uh, volume as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not normal, you know. Like most people don't have that kind of thing. It's also like another thing that I really like about the poker community is like, um, you know, I'm 38, and I think when people get to this age or even older, like in their 40s or 50s or whatever, like the friendships that you have become so much. Uh, it just becomes like harder to meet people harder to have like a good social life and i think that's like so important you can just like walk into a poker room and like see some friendly faces and talk and uh not be so isolated i think that's like a huge problem nowadays in society is people just feel so isolated yeah i, 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 I couldn't agree more yeah yeah um so yeah is there any anything else that that you wanted to touch on Steph, that we that we didn't talk about i did want to I did want to talk about a hand I played against you, Ben, but it might right. be a bad memory because I beat you Let's in the go. hand. Let's do it. <laughs> it wasn't really that interesting of a hand, but I remember you almost got me to fold pocket kings on like a three low card flop. Uh, you I remember that hand. So well. I remember that hand. Yeah. Why don't you? Why don't you tell me your recollection of it since you brought it up? <laughs> So I think that you opened under the gun. I three bet with Kings in late position. And then you four bet a suited wheel ace. And immediately I was just thinking like, oh shit. I think I had like 1500 in front of me or something. I was like, oh, well, Ben's going to stack me. This is going to suck. He has aces. And you flopped like a, I mean, it wasn't really that interesting of a hand. You flopped like a gutter wheel draw than like a flush draw or something like you had a lot of outs and you just played it like you had aces and i forced everybody at the table to watch me take for like 15 minutes with kings on like a deuce five six board or something uh and i really really wanted to fold it 
but uh i said like i'm not good enough to fold this hand here and um i had tabled my hand and everybody was like super mad at me for taking so long yeah i remember i remember the hand i mean a couple i remember a couple details differently so i had ace five of hearts and um yeah, I, uh, I I don't think we were 1,500 deep. I want to say one of us was like 500 or 600 deep. So I basically right. like, uh, you know, C-bet flop and then turned a flush draw. And we had like pop behind and I jammed. And uh, it's one of those spots where like someone four bets you under the gun. You know, thinking in terms of the Harris player pool. Like how many players, first of all, are going to do that without aces? Yeah, some people might have ace-king. I guess. So you so you can put me on like, I guess it, put the population on maybe like ace king of hearts or something and in pocket aces. So, um, you know, I felt okay with it. <laughs> felt kind of spewy. It felt like one of those like, like unnecessary spots where it's like, why am I looking back? It's like, well, why, like, why, why am I going to just like four bet step and blast off with ace five? Probably because I had seen like a YouTube video that, that <laughs> four bet ace five. That's probably why I did it. Um, that that yeah. hand really changed my opinion of you, though. Then, like that really showed me that like you're actually a, a really really good player. Because to be totally honest, like I didn't think that you were capable of doing something like that. That's why I was struggling so much to just like donate my money to you. After I saw that, I was like, oh shit! Like Ben's actually got some moves here. Like I need to watch out in the future. Well, that's one of the things I've noticed about the really good regs um, at the stakes we play. It's like I've been thinking about how they play against population and the way that I think they play is they make extremely disrespectful folds <laughs> all true, the time. Yeah. It's very like, true. There was a spot, there was a spot, and I'm not going to say who this was, where like uh, player opens, gets men re-raised by a woman who is just like, she's not She's not bluffing. She's got aces or, or queens, the way the hand ha happened. The flop came, whatever, and the guy checked, check, check, she bets, and he just insta-folds King's face up. And he's like, did you have the ace of hearts or the ace of uh, the, the black aces or red aces? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that kind of gets back to the ego thing. You know, he's just he just is showing. But, yeah, I mean, it's like the the disrespectful folds I, 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 is, is, is a mark of, like um, – what a lot of regulars do. And I don't know. I think you're like, you just have to decide like who's able to occasionally spew off, spew off the chips and it makes them a lot harder to play against. So I try to do that sometimes, you know? Yeah. Occasionally. You don't have to do it all the time, but like, yeah, people that are listening to this, like who do have a reputation of playing tight, I think they know that, you know, they know that they can get away with bluffing more. They just have to do it. But it's, I'm telling you, man, like it's so true. Like you can win so much money if you just, Simple blueprint, build up a tight image and then bluff later streets and just go with it. Go with it all three streets. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, you know, we all have our favorite poker players, but I just love the players who are just like, they're, they're dynamic. They're like water, you know, they just adjust to their situation. So it's yeah. like not about playing tight. It's not about playing loose, you know, and that's something that I don't do. I don't feel like I do particularly well. It's like, that's that's something I admire about other players is like, pedal to the metal and just just like a, 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 a detail that jumps out from this week was Patrick Antonius is at the final table of this um, uh, Triton 200k main event you know and he like 
was nursing three big blinds for like two hours and he laddered up like four spots and he basically like made him, it reminded me of you, Bill, because four players busted. So he finished third or fourth when he had like three bigs and he, did, and he had, a, it was a million dollar pay bump. A liter, literally, he made a million dollars by playing his stack effectively. <laughs> and of course, you know, we think of Antonius, we don't think of him knit folding you know, his, his three big blind stack to, to like a button open, but like, that was what he did. And I really admire the players who can do that. Yeah. And I, I want to issue one correction too, before I get people to just like blast off and not win these pots. When you do this, you have to target players that have the big egos. Like you're saying, Ben, the players that just think that like you suck and there's no way you can be doing this. And if you, if you do that against them, then they'll make the craziest hero folds against you. Yeah, that's a huge caveat. And it's the good, like, I call them good regs, but it's like the regs who, um, they're just aware that, of, like, players who don't have bluffs. And so how do you exploit players yeah. who don't have bluffs? You overfold. So if they perceive you as someone who doesn't have bluffs, then you should start bluffing, you know? But it's, yeah, yeah, it's a big caveat. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think it's good players as well as good regs. I don't know how, how you define regs, but uh, good players are going to fold to you when you've set that image, you know, very, you know, in my opinion, at least my experience is there's folds that you can get on those good players who are paying attention where they'll just let it go. Just go to the next one. What well, you probably have it, right? And then you you're stealing money at that point. Yeah, especially the people that are playing a lot, like putting in a ton of hours. I mean, they just know that they're gonna have easier spots, so they'll pass up on those, you know. Well, now that we've revealed all our strategies to the, to the Harris <laughs> New Orleans uh, card room, <laughs> I think our work is done. Uh, yeah. Dean, did We're you good. have any, any other questions or anything you wanted to chime in? With? Uh, Steph, thanks for uh, taking the time to meet with us. Uh, and it was nice to meet you. Uh, very good conversation. Yeah, Gina, if you're ever in Atlanta area, give me a holler. Yeah, I know. I used to live yes, in Atlanta, too. so I know what that uh, traffic's like. <laughs> it's pretty bad, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Steph. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome catching up with you guys. I, I really do uh, miss battling. <laughs> Even if you guys were not easy opponents, you know, I feel like we had a mutual respect. And, um, yeah, I uh, I hope sure. you guys crushed the, the games out there without me. Yeah, well, keep in touch if you're ever down here, you know, and I'll do the same if I'm if I'm passing through Atlanta. Yeah, for sure. Oh, actually, um, oh, yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, in Vegas during summer league, which is the same time as the World Series. So Ben, I know you usually go out there. Bill and Gene, if you're out there too, uh, give me a holler. We we have an event June 8th through the 11th at the MGM Grand in Vegas. So we'll be there early June, and also be there uh, for the main event as well. So. Nice. Are you, I uh, want to invite you as well. Um, I don't think, I think it's about three and a half, maybe four hours. There's some really good cash games in Pearl River Resort when we have our series there. Our next one's in July. But I've um, heard, yeah. Um, people rave about the cash games. So if that's a trip you can make, it's, um, it'd be worthwhile, I think. Are you playing the main bill you said? The WSOP main? Yes. Are yes. you selling pieces? No, I, I'm a minion. So they, uh, um, okay. um, the, so yes and no. So investors put me up, but um, oh. I'm one of, one of the team. So, 
Uh, I appreciate you asking. I'd love to. Um, I need to sweat out here, man. Yeah. I'm gambling on, uh, on the kids doing stuff. Now I got no, uh, no outlet for this now. <laughs> well, if you want to, if you want to buy shares of the minions, they're 200 bucks a pop and you get every player right now. We have a WPT winner. We have a girl, Jamie Vertuzio, who is top 20 in the world for women's results and me. And we're going to add more players too.